Hey, everybody. Welcome. Super, super excited to bring this podcast to you. This is the first edition of Over Coffee. And this is a podcast that Larry Davis and I have come together to, to bring to you. And it's, it's about stories of hope and inspiration. And we just want to bring some really positive things into people's lives. So we have an amazing guest today. Thank you so much for being here. We have uh, the Arizona Supreme Court Justice, William Montgomery. And he's, his story is just, just off the hook. So let's get into it, sir. Let's just talk about it. And I mean, starting off, so you're, you're a young man in LA, single mom, you got everything going against you. You know, how, how did you come out from that? Yeah. And so to, to give a little context too, I, I, I like to tell the joke for people who are familiar with geography around uh, South Central. Um, I was born in Linwood mm -hmm. and I went to middle and high school in Paramount. So I'm straight out of right next to Compton. All right. <laughs> I love it. Straight out of right uh, next door. Yeah. So my friends back home call me Just Ice. Um, <laughs> you nice. might have to edit that out. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, a young man, oldest of uh, three kids. Uh, uh, my mom had uh, myself and then a younger sister and younger brother. Um, my father wasn't around much. And there were times where uh, the only money we had was uh, was public assistance, welfare. Sure. Uh, I went to six elementary schools by the time I started the sixth grade. Uh, by the time I started, uh, I graduated from, from high school and started college. Uh, I'd moved 13 times. Wow. And not all of those moves were voluntary. Sure. Uh, started 10th grade, homeless. Uh, my mom and brother and sister were living with friends because uh, my parents had split up again. And I was staying with one of my best friends in high school and his family. And the goal there was for me to be able to keep going to the same school mm -hmm. uh, with a history that I just shared. Um, and and so, you know, so how did I deal with that? Well, a couple of things about that 10th grade, that first semester. Um, one was... I remember showing up to get my class schedule the first day and I'm standing in line and I'm kind of hunched down a bit because my, my t-shirt was about a half inch above my pant line. Sure. I grew. Yeah. Yeah. And my pants were about a half inch above my shoes. And I don't know if you guys remember the old, uh, Converse shoes. Oh yeah. Uh, and they were Converse high tops, but my feet had grown. Mm -hmm. And so I split the shoes now oh, trying wow. to be smart. Uh, because you know, they had that red piping yeah, yeah. Uh, around the shoe. I decided I was going to use some red thread and sew up my shoes. But that piping is horizontal and my sewing was vertical. <laughs> so I had like Frankenstein shoes. Sure. So I'm standing there in line with my feet together so nobody can see the inside of my shoes. And I'm kind of hunched down trying to deal with my high water pants and shirt. You're just trying to stay out of the scene. You don't want anybody paying attention to no, you. No, no. And, you know, and, and I'm thinking, okay, I just, I need to get through this day. Yeah. I'm at school. This is where I need to be. You know, my mom's constant mantra was, you need to get your education. This is where you're going to have uh, you know, your chance, your mm -hmm. opportunities. And so the thought that came into my head, I'm looking around. And it wasn't a very affluent high school for sure. But I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I can't compete with the best dressed. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lose the con. I'm going to lose the contest on you know, whose family has the most money. I said, but you know. I can probably study harder than anybody else here. Sure. And I'm not going to take a test that's going to ask those questions about, you know, what's the label on the clothes that I'm wearing? Okay, if I work hard, I think I can make this. I, I, I think I, I, I'm just, I'm not going to pay any attention to my clothes and any of that. I'm just going to work hard. And I remember during the first few weeks that semester too. So uh, my, my friend, I kicked his younger brother out of his lower bunk of the bunk beds I remember laying there one night looking up at the springs of the mattress thinking, you know, if I fail, it's okay. 
if I fail, that's what's expected. Because mm-hmm. anybody else in this circumstance, that's what would happen. And so then the contrary part of my nature said, all right, so you know what? I'm not going to fail. Right. I'm going to get straight A's. Yeah. That was the first semester I got straight A's in school. Wow. And I so got this just is a 15-year-old kid that this is happening, or 14 years old even. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it. I, I had this sense too. Um, I'm, I'm Catholic. I'm a person of faith. Mm-hmm. I had this sense too that God was not going to let me down. That even though uh, my father was in and out of my life, uh, that I had a father who loved me. Mm-hmm. And it's easier for me to put this into words today. Uh, I'm going to turn 57 this year. Sure. So I've had a lifetime of experience that I can look back on it and I can put these kinds of things into context. And that in some ways, that's that was another source of encouragement that I, I, I felt this. I probably couldn't have, there's no way I could have put it in these words yeah. back then, but, but sure. I felt it. So, um, yeah, I, I just stayed focused on that. Um, I, I, I you know, got to play varsity football with a bunch of kids there um, who were from similar backgrounds and we just wanted to work hard. Yeah. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the biggest. So this I, is this is almost a theme for you. I mean, looking at what you've accomplished in your life is work. So, I mean, you started working it as a sophomore. And then, I mean, we're going to go into the Army and West Point and being an attorney and, and that progression. But every one of those things just involves dedication and work, right? Yeah. And focus, uh, dealing with what you have to do to succeed. Uh, and, and maybe that's one other thing that I would draw from from growing up and what I got from my mom, uh, probably one of the biggest lessons learned that stays with me to this day Mm -hmm. is that circumstances are what we deal with. Sure. They do not dictate who you are or what you can become. Sure. And at every phase of life, whether, uh, you know, it's, it's studying, it's starting out in a career, it's starting a business at home with kids, with your, your wife or your husband, uh, there's always circumstances. There's always something going on that's going to present life. challenges. Yeah, that yeah. and that is life. And so it's, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Are you going to be a victim of circumstances? Or are you going to treat those circumstances as providing opportunities, either for personal growth or for interacting with others around you and helping to lift them up or, you know, being part of, of overcoming a situation? Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's work. It's, it's focus. It's dedication. It's taking the talents and abilities that you've been blessed with and applying it in a way to make mm-hmm. a, a positive difference. So when you were growing up, were you around going to church full time and around positive people that you looked up to? Um, so uh, I, I went to Catholic school to second grade, didn't really go to church regularly for a few years after that. I was an altar boy for a while, um, but our family did not regularly go uh, to mass. And it wasn't until I got to I got to West Point that um, that I started going regularly myself. I did have the benefit of having friends who had fathers that were around regularly, and I could see the interaction that they had with them. I could see the role uh, and the modeling from my friends' fathers, and and that was something that I think I I, um, I latched onto as well. As oh, this is what good can look like. Um, and then coaches, uh, you know, the coaches at my high school, um, because they dealt with kids from difficult circumstances. So the message I always heard was, uh, work hard, don't quit. Just because the guy on the other side of the line from you is six inches taller and 50 pounds heavier, have better technique. 
And so I guess I would say that, you know, the message I heard was a positive one and one that, that kept drilling into my head. Don't assume or let yourself be overcome by those circumstances, by what someone would say, oh, you can't do it. I mean, my senior year on the football team, we had seven returning seniors because the prediction was we were going to finish last. We weren't going to mm-hmm. make the playoffs. It was going to be a bad year. We had seven starting sophomores. Oh, wow. Yeah. We finished the regular season winning record. We went to the playoffs. That's fantastic. We got drummed out after the first round, but we, <laughs> but we made it. And I, I you know, it, it's funny, uh, you know, talking about this, I, I, I have these memories of walking off of the field afterwards and it was a tough defeat. We lost 39 to six. The last mm. game, right? The last yeah. game. Yeah. I remember walking off though and saying, don't ever tell me what a group of people who are willing to work hard can accomplish. Because we were told, in fact, some of uh, my senior classmates who had played football the years before didn't come out that year because they didn't want to be part of a losing program. Uh And they lost. So you're in high school. What drove you to pursue a military career? So, uh, you know, I I mentioned we didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) There was no way I could go to college without some kind of a scholarship. And so I, I had uh, a chance at a Naval ROTC scholarship uh, with a Marine Corps option, or uh, I wound up having this opportunity uh, with West Point. Now, I didn't find out about West Point until the, the summer between my junior and senior years in high school, Wow, which is way too late. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I had classmates and, and I still meet young men who've been dreaming about going to West Point since they were you know, in the third grade. I didn't know anything about it. I was the alternate delegate to Boy State that summer. Mm-hmm. And that summer, the American Legion Post had enough money, so they sent both the primary and the alternate. Oh, that's cool. So that's so, a jump start. Yeah. So I got to go to Boy State in California. I go to my dorm room at Cal State University, Sacramento. And on the desk were all these information cards. This is pre-internet. <laughs> all these information cards about colleges and things. And in the middle of it was this one card for information about West Point. And so I filled it out and sent it in. I got a pre-candidate questionnaire packet. I filled it out. And even with all the turmoil and constant moves and everything, uh, you know, my mom had made sure that I got to play some sports. I was in the Boy Scouts. Um, I had leadership opportunities with clubs in, in, in high school. And so I'm checking off all these boxes. And as a result of that, I get contacted for an interview. And that's you know, kind of led me down that path. Mm-hmm. And I figured, all right, one way or the other, I'm going to wind up with a military career because that's the only way I can get an education. Yeah. And, uh, and get out, right? And get out of the situation. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and have other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I figure, all right, I go Naval ROTC at UCLA, which was the only other school I applied to, or I could go to West Point. Let's see, if I go to war, that would be really bad. So I should go <laughs> to the school that's going to prepare me the best. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's what, you know, ultimately uh, took me to go to West Point. That's amazing. So, I mean, a lot, uh, West Point breeds career officers, right? Mm-hmm. So what was, what clicked for you to decide, hey, I'm going to do this for, you know, my commitment, my seven years and, and do other things with my life? What kind of drove you down that path? Well, so I, you know, I, I when I was making that decision to, because uh, as you mentioned, there's a commitment afterwards. Mm-hmm. There's a five-year active duty commitment. 
And I knew that if I made that decision, I was planning out the next nine years of my life. Right. I'm 18 years old. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. I didn't think that far ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking, all right, I, I want to serve my country. Uh, no, no other country in the world would have given a kid with my background that kind of a chance. Sure. sure. I, I had no military pedigree. You know, my father wasn't a captain of industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no money. Uh, I didn't know the congressman who appointed me or, or, or who nominated me. Um, so the uh, I, I go and while I'm there now, mind you, uh, I knew about General Patton, sure. Eisenhower, yeah. Grant, you know uh, the big names, the, top, yeah, so, the big yeah, five, <laughs> yeah, some some more you know famous uh, people who graduated from there. The history department at West Point has a great motto: mm-hmm. much of the history we teach was made by people we taught. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> that is great. Yeah, and, and so uh, so I, I went there and uh, and I, I soaked it up. Uh, I remember that very first day walking around and looking at all these buildings and and thinking. MacArthur yeah. was here and Pershing and, and Grant Eisenhower and Patton and Bradley and, and, and all these men who had served. And then I thought, well, I, I can do this. Mm-hmm. If I work hard, yep. if I apply myself, I can do it. Uh, and I didn't graduate at the top of my class, but I graduated in the top group of my class and then thought, okay, uh, I'm going to keep an open mind about a 20-year career in the military. And so that's how I went into it. Though my very first six months in the Army, mm-hmm. I had one day in the field. Oh, wow. Because I got commissioned in 1989. The Berlin Wall came yeah. down. Pieces yeah. breaking out all around the world. Sure. People were holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Yeah. <laughs> so we were mothballing tanks. I was an armor officer. Yeah. So we were mothballing tanks and shipping them off to depots mm-hmm. uh, for storage. Right. And then... Uh, uh, this guy named Saddam Hussein decided he was going to Got to dust Kuwait. everything back off and bring it yeah. back out. Huh? Yeah, because uh, nobody bothered to tell him that this was yeah, now an exactly. era of peace. Uh, and so you went to the war you're preparing for. Yeah, I, I, I wound up doing that. Yeah, but uh, but before that, I was thinking, I'm after my five years are done, I'm gone. Sure. I, I'm not learning enough to be able to teach others. Uh, but after that experience, that also. You know, the, the the old army mantra, be careful what you ask for. Yeah. Because you just might get it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I came back from that and decided then I was going to stay at least until I had the chance to command. Uh, and then after I, I, I got to command an armored cavalry troop, um, that's when I made the decision to leave mm-hmm. active duty. Um, the army wanted me to become a foreign area officer and learn mm-hmm. a foreign language. And I would have spent a lot of time at embassies and then at the Pentagon. Sure. And I didn't want to have a desk job. Um but the affirmation that that was the right decision uh, to do that uh, came two months to the day after I started working in Silicon Valley. It's where mm-hmm. I met my wife. Oh, wow. Fantastic. There yeah. you go. That's great. So, so that's, that's, that's kind of how, how that then played sure. out. So what leads you to the tech world coming out of the Army? Well, I went to a hiring conference in San Diego for junior military officers. Mm-hmm. And of all the companies that I interviewed with, one of them was a semiconductor capital manufacturing equipment. Okay company. So they made the tools that Intel and other companies mm-hmm. used to make their chips. Sure. And it involved physics, chemistry, mechanical engineering, biology, sure. uh, electrical engineering, all this stuff. And I, wow, I haven't done anything like that before. This would be fun. I, I could use all these other different aspects of my undergraduate degree. Um, but, you know, half of it was in math, science, and engineering. Mm-hmm. Half of it was that, none of which I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> but, that's a lot. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was intellectually interesting mm-hmm. to do that. And the other jobs that, uh, that I had been offered, I remember in the interviews for them, it was always, oh, yeah, that's just like something I had done. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't want to go do something I had already done. Sure. So it was, uh, that, that's what the draw was. And then I went to work for a computer manufacturing company after that. Um, and then got tired of the cyclical nature of semiconductor, yeah. sure. uh, the semiconductor industry. And that, that then led me to, to think about going to law school and brought my wife and I here to Phoenix. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's just amazing because most, most people, they look at law school from day one, right? I mean, they, they start their undergraduate and this is what I'm going to do. And I mean, you got a big swing in there. I mean, you go off to war, you go to work in tech and then decide to be a lawyer. Was that, I mean, that had to be hard in and of itself. It was, well, it was, so I, I went to law school about 10 years after, right. after my undergrad degree. So I wasn't the oldest, but I was among the oldest sure. students there. And, and, and you're right, as we're talking about this, maybe this is the theme. I got there and I treated it as a job. Yeah, work. So my, yeah. I, I, I went to class, you know, each day of law school, that was my job eight to five. And then because I was married and I wanted to end law school with the same wife I started with, sure. I made sure <laughs> that, you know, in, in the evenings, that was that was couple's time. Sure. Uh, stay connected to my wife and not get caught up in this law school environment. Um, and so, yeah, that's I, that's how I treat it that way. And I did really well in law school. Um, and, uh, you know, it was three years of studying. You know, I, I, I joke that law school is just three years of study to qualify you to take a test. So yeah. you can then get licensed to be a lawyer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Were you crazy. working at the same time going to school? No. Well, the first year uh, couldn't work. It was a full-time program. There were no evening or part-time programs available. So the first year I didn't work, um, my wife was the sole breadwinner. Mm -hmm. And when we first moved here, she was the HR manager at the Phoenix Zoo. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And just this last uh, Christmas, we, we went to, to Zoo Lights uh -huh. and to see how that has grown. Oh, it's great, uh, isn't it? Since, since the first time we went, I think back in 98. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. But yeah, but, uh, she was the HR manager there. I like to tell that story. And she wound up leaving from that job because she figured out that their emphasis was on AR, not HR. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I did. My, my second year, um, I, did, uh, I did intern in the summer with a civil firm. Um, had a great time doing it. And that was more or less kind of like, you know, now, now that I'm in law school, let's, let's see which area of the law I enjoy the most. Because this is my third career. I, I had to pick one and stick with it. Because mm -hmm. I wanted my wife to stick with me too. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I had an interest in prosecution. I, I, I thought going to law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor. So for my third year, I competed for a fellowship, uh, the Sherman Young Prosecution Fellowship, and I won it. So my last year, I worked at the city of Phoenix, Maricopa County, the Attorney mm -hmm. General's Office, and then the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I did that throughout that last, that last year uh, and then wound up going to work at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office as a result of all of that. So and this you're is another, also, oh, sorry, go ahead. You're also a father too. Yeah. Yes. When the kids, kids come up. So, uh, <laughs> so our son was born in 2003 and, uh, and I was working, uh, full time at the county attorney's office as a line prosecutor. And that was just awesome. Uh, it is awesome. I, you know, yeah. I, I was there when he was born and, and I got in trouble too, because, uh, cause you know, after you, after a baby's born, the, the nurse will bring him over to sort of this warming table and, and they work on the baby to get him to cry. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure yeah. the lung function is going, going well. Sure. So he's crying and they hand him to me and I start to comfort him <laughs> to get him to stop crying. And then I say, don't do that. We want to hear him cry. Well, all right. <laughs> uh, but you know, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm the dad. That's my job now. I, I got to take care of this guy. Yeah. 
Uh, and we walk out of the delivery room and the first thing that they want you to do is put a diaper on them, mm-hmm. bundle them up and feed them. So I go to put the diaper on the nurse comes over and she goes, you need any help? I said, I've prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to make a mistake, you can step in, but otherwise I'm going to have to figure this out. And I think I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, and then I bundled them up and, you know, turned them in a little burrito. And the nurse is like, oh, that's pretty good. I, said, wow. I told you, I prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. And our daughter was born two years later. Uh, you know, and again, um, you know, that, that was tough. Uh, our daughter was five weeks premature. Oh, wow. And she was born the day after my mom's funeral. So my mom passed away a week before our daughter was born. Uh, and when I say in one week, I helped my mom leave this world and fought along with our daughter to bring her in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the two most important jobs that I have is to be a husband and be a father. And, and the thing that, that I also learned early on was, you know, the best thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's all this other stuff that I've been able to do. Uh, and I'm sure if folks want to Google mm-hmm. and, and, or go to the court website and see what my bio is, that's all great. Those, those, those are accomplishments that certainly I am proud of, but that's not what's fulfilling. Mm-hmm. What's fulfilling is being a husband and a father. And, you know, from, from how I grew up, I didn't have that. I had a, I, I guess you could say I did have a choice to make. Which path was I going to follow? Mm-hmm. Was I going to follow the one that was predictable from the standpoint of anybody else from these circumstances, this is what's going to happen to them? Or was I going to follow a path to say, you know, um, as Larry, you were asking me earlier about people who I may have been around who had a positive influence. Or was I going to follow a path where I was able to see that in a comparison, um, not having a father around is hard on the mother of your children, and it's hard on the kids. It makes life way more difficult than it needs to be. Or was I going to be someone who would be dependable and people could count on for love and support and encouragement? And I decided, you know, um, I think that's what I'm called to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have had all these opportunities um, if... God didn't want to use me for, for a good purpose. And you know, so whatever my kids wind up doing, uh, good for them. As long as they wind up being happy, healthy human beings and they're able to pursue a vocation that uses the talents and abilities that they've been blessed with, then I think I've done my job. But, um, but yeah, being a father is awesome and, and watching your kids grow up into the human beings that they're, there's nothing better. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty impactful, isn't it? It's, oh, it it's is. crazy to see for sure. So that's, I mean, that's just a true story of hope, right? I mean, you're, you're coming out of just super, super challenging situation. And good question though, like when you have children, you have no experience with this, right? So, I mean, you've seen some role models growing up and going mm-hmm. through your life. I mean, what, what clicks in you? Is it, is it the church? Is it faith? I mean, what, what guides you to be the parent that you become? Um, it's it's certainly all of that that goes into the makeup of who you are uh, as a man mm-hmm. to be a father. And part of what I always thought about too was, okay, I sort of have a responsibility in interacting with my children 
to be a father, like God is a father to me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, some of the things that our society struggles with is uh, first you know, men not being men, mm-hmm. men not being the positive role models in reflecting what it is to honor and cherish their, their wife, the mother, their children, and, and to be an example and a role model for their children. Um, and, and I think that in some ways that also makes it difficult for people to look at God as a loving father too. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a loving father, how can you imagine anybody ever being a loving father? So that was also something that I think certainly impacted how I view my role and responsibility with my children. I want them to see me as someone who uh, holds them accountable, mm-hmm. uh, but gives them unconditional love and is forgiving. Those are going to make mistakes sure. and looks forward to them picking themselves back up, dusting themselves off, be there to be you know, their, their coach, their number one cheerleader, uh, and, and to help them, uh, again, learn what it is. Uh, to move through this world, uh, to share some of the lessons that I learned with them, you know, and some of the things that uh, my wife didn't grow up under exactly the same kind of circumstances, but very similar. Sure. Um, certainly from economic opportunities uh, perspective. Uh, but, you know, we, we also try to impart to our kids that you benefit from the hard work we've put in over time to give you some of these material opportunities, but never mistake the fact that just because you've had these opportunities guarantees you success. Mm -hmm. And do not make the mistake that just because you've had these opportunities makes you better than anybody else or makes you better than people who haven't had them. Uh Uh-uh. That just now means that you have an obligation to provide for your families to carry on and provide this kind of an example and to help out those who are less fortunate. You've had a stressful life from childhood all the way through your adult life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm a stress magnet or what. (laughs) So do you, are you part of any groups, support groups or people who still guide you, counsel you and you get direction from? Uh, So I, I go to mass every week Mm -hmm. uh, and, and take advantage of that opportunity to, to focus on my relationship with God, uh, to, give thanks and praise. So that's one big source for, for helping to deal with stress and, and what life can throw at you. Uh, and then I have friends who I don't get to, to be with as often as I'd like. I'd, I'd include you on that list, uh, who also are really good examples of people who've overcome their own set of circumstances and, and help keep me grounded. Um, I don't have a fan club. I've never been comfortable with that. Because uh, I, I also uh, believe that I would rather be someone that God lifted up than someone that God had to knock down. You know, so I'd rather be humble than be humbled. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I have friends that uh, that I'll get with occasionally, uh, even if it's just for you know for lunch every few months or so, just to check in. You know, how's the family doing? Uh, and then uh, you know, kind of discuss uh, where we're at in life at that point. You know, a lot of the work that I do right now on the court, I, I can't necessarily share. Sure. Um, but, you know, there's, there's enough other stress, <laughs> and, you know, having kids in college to, <laughs> to deal with. So we'd be a little bit amiss if we didn't kind of finish some of the story, right? Because, I mean, now we've gotten through you being at the, at the prosecutor's office, but there's some progression past that. So, um, I mean, how was that balance? And tell us a little bit about where you progressed to. Sure. So. 
so I worked at the county attorney's office for a few years. Uh, my wife's expecting our daughter, and uh, prosecutors don't make a lot of money. Yeah. So I left the office and went into private practice, and uh, and that was about the point in time when my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer. Oh wow! And uh, so I, I put uh, the practice law on hold, and uh, and the firm I was working at, they were great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were very understanding, uh, and then. You know, I helped take care of my mom with uh, my brother and sister until she passed. And then our daughter was born. And so that was the perfect time to run for attorney general of Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Right? <laughs> so I was the Republican nominee in 2006. And sure. I like to say the outcome of that election allowed me to go back to the county attorney's office. <laughs> uh, but in the midst of that, too, I did some advocacy work for crime victims mm-hmm. and, um, and, and had some exposure uh, doing that type of representation. Wound up going back to the county attorney's office in 2008, and uh, and became a supervisor. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that was around the time when the county attorney then uh, resigned to run for attorney general. And so there was a special election, mm-hmm. and I looked around at folks who were uh, thinking about serving as county attorney and didn't see anybody I wanted to work for. Oh wow! Okay. Um, you know, and I don't mean that in a negative way. No, just, no, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I had. I had all these years of leadership training experience from West Point and the mm-hmm. Army, and, uh, and there were a lot of issues with the organization, the office, and its relationship with other county officials and the public at the time. And I, I think I know how to fix this. Yeah. I think I well, know it's almost how, a calling you built up to that. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a fair way to say it. I at that point in my life, I think I, I had the leadership training experience, and I had an idea of how the office could work to maximize opportunities for people who wanted to work there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a public job. You're not mm-hmm. going to get paid a lot of money. Sure. But the people who work there, who still work there to this day, uh, are dedicated and mm-hmm. want to do a good job. So I ran for it. I won uh, my primary uh, by 13 points, which you know folks were astounded at. Yeah, but that's fantastic. They didn't, they didn't see all the hard work. Right. For six months, I'd gone around to all these different yeah. clubs and organizations. The shaking hands and kissing babies. Thing, yeah, right? and, yeah, and pitching that, you know, here's my experience. Here's what I can do. Here's what the office can look like and how it can serve the community. Um, and then yeah, I got elected. And mm-hmm. I served in that job for nine years. Um, uh, won 17 national awards for wow, all kinds fantastic. of different programs. Yeah. Uh, we were designated a high-performing prosecution agency by the Department of Justice at the time. Uh and uh, just initiated uh, uh, new diversion programs uh, that kept people out of the criminal justice system. Uh, one of those programs, uh, there was a longitudinal study just done. The recidivism rate was less than 5% when historically recidivism rates for felony offenders are as over 30%. Wow. So all of these uh, tremendous outcomes uh, as a result of, of what we did um, and uh, so it's, it's September of 2019. You know, going into 2019, uh, I knew that the election in 2020 was going to be difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the political scene today uh, is just uh, extremely challenging. And there were three things I was going to have to do in that run up in 2020. Um, I needed to manage what was one of the largest county-based prosecution agencies in the country. There were a thousand full-time employees. Wow. Or 350 prosecutors a civil services division of over a hundred employees. And, uh, and then on top of that, I was going to have to raise significant money mm-hmm. in 2016. Uh, George Soros spent $2 million of his own money to try to defeat me in that reelection effort. 
That year, he went after, I think, 11 prosecutors. Me and one guy in Colorado were the only two he didn't defeat. Wow, that's crazy. Um, and so I knew I was going to have to raise a lot of money. So run the office, raise money, and oh, yeah, I've got a son starting high school and a daughter who's just about ready to start high school. Sure. And I'm still married. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the same woman. Yeah. So I've got to, I have the responsibility to be a husband and a father. I couldn't do those three things in a 24-hour day. Sure. And I wasn't going to sacrifice my family. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of openings on the Supreme Court. Uh, I put my name in for that. Uh, the first time through, uh, there were folks in the community who could not fathom that someone who had worked hard at leading a prosecution agency for nine years could leave that behind and then go be uh, an independent, impartial, uh, and objective mm-hmm. justice on a court. Uh, and you know, my, my response to that was, well, that's because you're misperceiving the dedication to doing a good job as being the dedication to only doing one job. Mm-hmm. You know, and over the course of my life, I'd taken oaths uh, of office to do different things. And that dedication and hard work was to do a good job wherever I was. Uh, and so, you know, I, I made the argument um, where I needed to that, no, I work hard to be a county attorney. I'll work hard to be a good justice on mm-hmm. the Supreme Court too. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, and uh, Governor Ducey appointed me to the court in September 2019. I've been there ever since. Con- congratulations. That's an amazing story. Yeah. I, you know, who would have thought that, you know, a, a kid who, you know, had a father that uh, did time in federal prison would one yeah. day be Just responsible for admi- <laughs> Yeah. And then be responsible for administrating a justice system. Yeah. That's just absolutely fantastic. Well, I mean, we super appreciate your time. Anything you want to add in, Larry, to close it out? What's the one thing you're grateful for? Um, my family. I'm grateful for my family because given where I came from and what I experienced growing up, uh, it truly is a gift because I have no right to have expected to be blessed in that way. Here I am. Absolutely fantastic. So that's over coffee. We really appreciate you guys for being here. Uh, Larry Davis is here with me. And uh, Arizona Supreme Court Justice Montgomery, I appreciate you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Thanks, Mr. Montgomery, for being here. And uh, what a killer story of hope and inspiration. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Larry.